This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Massive multi-storey buildings turn to rubble. Ordinary people desperately digging to find people screaming underneath. There's still a lot we don't know, but everything we do know about the massive earthquakes that have devastated parts of Turkey and Syria is heartbreaking. We're taking you to these communities today that have been obliterated by the worst earthquake to hit the region in more than a century. And you're going to hear from young Turkish Australians who are trying to make sense of all this while they're watching on from here so far away. Also coming up on Hack, journalist Hamish McDonald is going to explain why we really don't know enough about the most powerful leaders in the world. He's got a new podcast out changing all of that. But first... Running for their lives... Shaken to their foundations, whole buildings fell. There is nothing that can prepare you for the scale of these earthquakes and aftershocks that have flattened parts of Turkey and Syria. They were so powerful, people could feel them in Lebanon, Cyprus, Egypt and Israel. And the death toll just keeps rising. Authorities don't know how many people are being killed but more than 4,000 have been confirmed dead so far. Over the next few hours and days, authorities are saying that could triple, even quadruple. And tens of thousands of others have been injured. This is the worst earthquake in this region in living memory, and countries around the world are sending help. Australia's already committed $10 million. You'll notice... I'm saying Turkey instead of Turkey, and that's because the country officially changed its name last year for English speakers. So in case you were wondering, that's why I'm doing that. Our reporter, April McLennan, has the latest on what's happened. And just a heads up, a lot of you might find this distressing. At around four in the morning, when the people of Turkey and neighbouring Syria were in better sleep, a powerful magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck the area. Ten cities were affected by the initial quake. Hours later, a second huge magnitude 7.5 quake hit. Several aftershocks have been felt across the region. Buildings toppled over and trapped residents under mounds of rubble. Some people survived simply because of what house or room they were in, but thousands have been injured and killed. Our relatives are dead. My sister's daughter died. She was 17. My sister-in-law's children are stranded under the rubble. She is there with three children. They are not rescued yet. God, please help us. Please pray for us. I beg you, pray for us. Rescuers face heavy rain, snow and freezing conditions as they desperately search for anyone who may be alive under the partially collapsed structures. But as they continue to pull bodies from underneath lumps of concrete and twisted metal, the World Health Organization predicts the death toll could rise as much as eight times. This man cries as he points to a collapsed building where his mother and father are trapped. He's waiting for emergency workers to help. They are speaking, but nobody comes. We are finished. We are finished. My God, they are speaking. There is nobody here. Nobody. What kind of state is this? (laughs) 
Duyduk duyduk seslerini vuruyor sesleniyor sesleniyor. We heard them. They are calling out asking for help. They asked to be rescued. We cannot rescue them. How can we rescue them? Nobody has come since this morning. Nobody. We have nobody. Look around. Look. Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan says the earthquake was the worst to hit the country since 1939. We do not know how far the number of dead and injured will rise as debris removal works continue in many buildings in the quake zone. Our hope is that we will recover from this disaster with the least loss of life. Across the border in Syria, the wailing of children, flattened buildings and hospitals full of bodies from the earthquake is a painful but familiar sight. The country has been worn down after more than a decade of civil war, which has displaced millions of people. In rebel-held areas, rescue groups like Syria's White Helmets are the only help at hand. In a video released by the group, spokesman Ishmael Abdullah fights back tears. Many families now are under the rubble. Our team's trying to save them, but it's a very difficult task for us. We need help. We need the international community to do something to help us, to support us. We need help from everyone to, 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 to save our people. In their search for any signs of life, young men claw through debris and hammer slabs of concrete. A toddler's pulled from the rubble and carried to safety. But many survivors are left to search for loved ones on their own. I'm waiting to pull out my brother and his family, him and his seven children. They pulled someone out, but it wasn't them. They took him away. Everyone is pulling out their own family members. May God help us. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. Awful sounds out of these earthquake-ravaged parts of Turkey and Syria. Look, I want to talk to some people impacted by this. It's hard to get a line to those who are on the ground, as you can imagine. It's chaotic over there at the moment. But Mustafa Dusko is Turkish. He's lived in Sydney for a few years, but all his friends and family are still back home, are still over in Turkey. He's with us now. Hey, Mustafa, thanks for agreeing to speak with us. You're welcome. These earthquakes hit your hometown. I mean, it must feel awful to be watching all of these devastating reports come through. What's it been like? Yes, I saw on the social media and I called my mum and actually I saw one of the shock on the video call when I was speaking with my mum. It was really, really bad. Everyone was screaming and it happened in the middle of day when they are sleeping zero degrees and it was raining, snowing in most of the cities. You were speaking with your family when one of the shocks happened. That must have been so scary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've heard everything. Everyone was screaming. I actually heard the earthquake sounds as well. It was scary. How is your family? Uh, They're fine. They're safe. My parents are okay. They are living in a townhouse, which is more safer than living in an apartment, you know. A few family members are underneath a collapsed building, unfortunately. We can't hear anything from them. I've lost a few of my friends. They were living in different cities. One of my best friends. I'm so sad. Oh, Mustafa, I'm so sorry. It must feel like a nightmare to know already that you've lost one of your best friends. You've got family members that are still missing. It's 
just terrible. Are earthquakes common in this part of Turkey? Like, do you remember them growing up? When I was a kid, it happened once. Uh, I was like seven years old. We went out, I remember. I was really afraid. I remember that times, to be honest. But this is the way bigger than what happened before. Is there a big Turkish community here in Australia, Mustafa? Yes. Uh, so some of my friends that I saw on social media at the moment, they created their fundraise. So just you can help people send some money. And I imagine all of those people here in Australia are also tr- supporting each other. Exactly, exactly. So last night, I, we had a few friends that they live in Western Sydney. They lost most of family members and friends. So I was with them last night. There are people supporting each other here as well. Mustafa, like I said, um, it must be really hard watching this being so far away. Uh, what does that feel like? Like when you're when you're watching TV and you're seeing um, places that you know and hearing reports of things that are so horrible, you're talking to your family and friends, but you're here. How does that feel? Well, I cry a lot. Really bad feeling that so many things happened last like five years. You know, we had COVID. It's also if I were there. That will be crazy as well. But I'm here and I'm not really good as well. So I don't know how to explain my feelings, to be honest. So the only thing that I thank God that my parents are okay. I don't know what to say. Well, look, it's a, it's such a hard time, I'm sure, for, for you, your family, your friends. Um, Mustafa Dostru, thank you for speaking with us. And we're sorry that you're going through this really horrible situation, especially because you are so far away. But we do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, and explain a bit about, you know, what's happened back home. Thank you very much. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, we're getting messages from people asking how they can help, um, wanting to know the best places for donations, things like that. Hack's going to make sure we tell you. We're figuring out the details uh, on the best places that you know you can you can send your da- donations to. So this week we'll share those details on social. So keep an eye out for that. We have another person with us now who's close to this story. Audrey Courty is an ABC journalist. She's based in Bundaberg in Queensland. She's Turkish-Australian, spent a lot of her childhood there. Hey, Audrey, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. We just heard from Mustafa. He's finding it obviously really distressing seeing these scenes from back home while being so far away. How are you going? I mean, I agree. It's extremely distressing. To be honest, I haven't been very productive today at work. I've just, you know, been, you know, watching all the footage coming through social media on television. It's really distressing. It's bringing back a lot of memories because I was there in 1999 when there was that last really severe earthquake. It was 7.6. This one was 7.8. But it's unfolding exactly as it did back then and it's just bringing back a lot of traumatic memories to be honest and you just get this helpless feeling you really want to help but you don't know how and you're so far away what was the aftermath of that uh, earthquake that you experienced all those years ago like did it take obviously so many years for these communities to rebuild and people to get back on their feet 
It did. I was seven years old at the time and my family, um, you know, it happened in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. And I remember getting you know, dragged out of bed by my father telling me there was an earthquake. It was my first time really experiencing one and we couldn't get down. We were trapped on the first floor of this house because um, it was shaking so violently that we couldn't actually get down the stairs without injuring ourselves. So we really were at the mercy of this building holding together before coming down. And then I just remember as a kid, you know, when we finally got out and we had to spend the night out. And this is, I think, the key difference. It was the middle of the summer back then. This is happening in Turkey right now in the middle of winter. And we had to stay out. We couldn't go back into the buildings due to aftershocks, afterquakes. And the exact same thing is happening now, except they're having to brave the cold. A lot of people are without shelter. Um, so I think it's much worse. And they had a 7.8 one. I had a, I experienced a 7.6. And on top of that, they experienced a 7.5 earthquake a couple hours later. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, the death toll is going to continue to rise. Back then, it was 17,000 deaths. Wow. I, I'm just concerned. It was so devastating. And I remember just as a kid, you're in the car and you're driving through and all these towns were just flattened. Can you, so t- um, can you yeah. tell us a bit more, Audrey, about the area affected? Because we were hearing from Mustafa that it is a combination of cities and smaller towns as well. Yeah, so, I mean... It- it's in the this has happened in the eastern the southeastern part of turkey and this is a really densely populated and more poor stricken area of turkey um so unfortunately i think the devastation is going to be worse especially because some of these buildings are much older you know in istanbul now they build new buildings with the awareness that there could be earthquakes it is quite an earthquake prone country um but in these eastern south and eastern areas they don't have that. So I think the devastation will be worse. Not to mention the fact that you have so many refugee camps um, and, you know, Kurdish populations in that area that work illegally um, and have already experienced so much grief and loss. Um, it's just, I mean, the scale, what they're having to go through again is just unimaginable. Well, yeah, and I mean, any country would struggle to recover from something like this. It's going to take a long time. What kind of impact do you think it's going to have on these parts of Syria and Turkey going forward? It's going to be the rebuilding, but it's just the shock. Like if I saw the World Health Organization is estimating 20,000 people uh, will have died in this quake. We don't know that yet. We've only got, you know, 4,000 confirmed. But I think that's a reasonable estimate given the previous stats. Um, that's a huge loss, you know, on top of the loss. You know, we've got a 12-year war in Syria. It just, I, I think that will also have a huge toll on people's psyche. Well, look, we'll be keeping up to date with uh, what is happening. We appreciate your insights and obviously thoughts with you as well uh, and your family, people who are affected over there. ABC journalist Audrey Cordy, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, so sad to have seen the news and feel uh, hopeless. You know, I've been here since 2010. First generation, um, can't contact a lot of people that I know back home. Hack. Well, Treasury modelling shows there were 7 million active buy now, pay later accounts in the most recent financial year. On Triple J. Buy now, pay later, a big part of our lives. We've spoken quite a bit about it on Hack before, about how some of you have even fallen into debt spirals, getting caught up in these services. But there's a lot of worry in the buy now, pay later industry right now, and that's because one Australian platform, OpenPay, has collapsed, and a whole bunch of people are now trying to sort out its debts, figure out what's happening with it. Maybe you used OpenPay or another buy now, pay later service. 
If it's taken you by surprise, want to know, let me know, 0439 757 We'll get a quick check-in to find out what's going on. Alex Turner-Cohen is a finance reporter at news.com.au. She's been covering this story. Hey, Alex, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. So what's happened? Why has OpenPay found itself in so much trouble? Well, I think the more important question is how could it not be in trouble when it hasn't actually turned a single profit since it listed on the ASX four years ago? Um, So obviously that's a huge problem with any kind of business, especially a, a business like this where it relies a lot on credits, credit lines being extended to it. So essentially what happened is it had about $40 million worth of credit that it thought would be made available And given its latest financial report, where it lost about $18 million, they weren't willing to do that. And as a result, it dipped below a certain threshold and was suddenly in the red. And so what does that mean for staff that work there? I mean, there's a whole, but like dozens and dozens of people who are employed by OpenPay, right? Yeah. So um, reportedly, there's about 140 staff and about 80 of them have already been made redundant. And if I was the other 60, I would also be looking for a new job because they're only really being kept on um, to keep collecting payments from customers. That's essentially all that the company's doing at the moment. It's just operating to collect the debts that it's already got from customers. Otherwise, it's kind of a means to an end. So, yeah, all of those 140 staff would be unlikely to be keeping their jobs in the the long term, I would say. Right. And I mean, so if you are a customer of OpenPay and you owe money, you've obviously still got to pay it. Your debts aren't wiped. That's not what this means. Yeah, it's not at all. Sadly, that might have been what some people were thinking when they read some of the articles. They might have been a bit excited. But no, if you have existing loans, you'll still have to settle up. And the only difference is if you are a customer of OpenPay without loans, you, you can't use the service anymore. And if you do have loans, you still can't use the service, but you still have to pay them back, essentially. Alex, it sounds like there are, you know, a heap of concerns around in this buy now, pay later um, industry at the moment. What What's going on more broadly? Yeah, so... Um, it's definitely, as you were saying, not just open pay. It's a lot of them. And especially um, it's it's kind of an Australian-centric problem in a way as well because the Australian market has the most buy now, pay later providers out of anywhere else in the world. Um, so it's oversaturated. And on top of that, not a single one of them is actually operating at a, at a profit. They're all losing money. Um, so you could say it's kind of like um, the emperor's new clothing. At the beginning, they seemed like this shiny new thing that was on the market and everyone rushed in to invest. And now, um, you know, three, four years later, we've had this recession, this global recession that everyone's in and people are beginning to realise that they're just not turning a profit. They're not sustainable in the long term. Interesting. Well, we appreciate uh, your insight into this. Finance reporter Alex Turner-Cohen, thanks so much for breaking that all down for us. Thanks for having me, guys. Talk to you later. And we've got some messages coming through. Someone on the text line, Reese, always pulling through with uh, with little comments. I'm guessing there was too much buying now, not enough paying later. Hack. It is nerve-wracking. I mean, uh, we're always keeping our, our eyes and ears open. We absolutely nothing to do with the Saudi community here. On Triple J. Think about the biggest world leaders of our time, the people who are going to be talked about for generations, for better or worse. Maybe you're thinking about Russia's President Vladimir Putin or China's leader Xi Jinping. 
You hear a lot about them, and here on Hack, we're always doing stories on, you know, whether it's controversial policies or diplomatic fights that are that are happening. But how much do you actually know about these people themselves, like for real? Who are they? What makes them tick? Well, there's a new podcast out, and you're going to love it. It's called Take Me to Your Leader. It's a deep dive into these people who are reshaping our world. The host of this podcast is someone you're going to know. He's on the project. He's on the ABC. He's on Triple J right now. Hamish McDonald, welcome to Hack. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So many of us never really think about the backstories of world leaders, right? Because they're just faces on our screens, names in the headlines. But at the end of the day, they are changing the world in all kinds of ways. Their actions are affecting our lives. It makes sense we should know more about them. Where'd the idea for this podcast come from? I think in many ways you probably share this frustration with me. When we tell the stories about the big changes in the world, it's it's important when you're broadcasting particularly to simplify the story and make it digestible. But one of the consequences of that sometimes is that we boil these leaders down to almost caricatures. And the leaders themselves play into that because they do stupid stuff like, you know, uh, wash someone's hair in a hair salon to win votes or they (laughs) pick up and kiss a baby or they eat a sausage roll or an onion in a weird way or they wrestle a bear or they ride horseback topless or they go fishing or do, uh, you know, uh, jujitsu to try and, I guess, project an image of themselves. So they're, they're, they're part of this process but it does it does turn them slightly into caricatures. Actually, now that you mention it, (laughs) there are a few weird examples, aren't there? You're looking into a few different people. Each episode of this podcast is a deep dive on a different leader. The first one is fascinating because he's one of the youngest. He's a millennial. He's famous... He's famous in the West for big ideas, right? People will know some of the ideas, building a $500 billion strip city in the middle of the desert. Hugely powerful, also one of the most feared people in the Middle East. Hamish, who is he? I'm t- we're talking about Mohammed bin Salman. He's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And he kind of came from nowhere. Even though he's a member of the royal family, he was never destined to be the guy in charge. And in fact, formally, his dad still is. But he is, they call him Mr. Everything and the Minister for Everything in Saudi because he's got control of the state. And, you know, he, he's done some wild stuff, like round up, a whole bunch of the royal family, even to the sort of farthest lengths of the royals, and put them inside the Ritz-Carlton under house arrest as part of an anti-corruption drive. And it made him wildly popular amongst some of the population because he said, look, this is Saudi money. This belongs to the people. Uh, I don't want this going to members of my family. I want this being spent on improving our our country. Um, But it's pretty wild thing to do. If you think Prince Harry's kind of <laughs> gone a bit out there by moving to, to California, uh, Mohammed bin Salman's done 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 some pretty bold stuff. There's another wild prince out there. But yeah, people might remember he was personally linked to the assassination of a journalist a few years ago. Yeah, so you're probably familiar with the name, if you listen to Hack or anything on the ABC, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. He's this Saudi journalist that went into uh, the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Um, he He was there uh, to discuss some visa arrangements around his wedding, uh, his upcoming wedding, and he was dismembered. And incredibly, there's actually audio tapes of this because of intelligence gathering operations uh, that were taking place at the time. And so the dismembering is all on tape. Uh, There's also amongst them is a guy whose job it is to carve up the 
the body and he what? puts plas- classical music on and says, you know, normally when I'm chopping up a cadaver, uh, I play music. So it's, it's a brutal killing. And given the power that MBS, that's what he's known as, wields, you know, there is an argument the CIA, different governments around the world have said it's, it's almost impossible that this happened without his knowledge, maybe also without his say-so. Uh, and so this has really shaped the way that he is perceived globally. But it's wildly different to how he's seen at home. You know, young people see this guy that's kind of liberalising the country. He's taken on the religious establishment. He's let some women drive. He's allowed some American hip-hop artists to come and perform concerts. These are huge changes in I Saudi. was going to ask, so with young people in Saudi Arabia, they've got a pretty positive view of this crown prince because he's opened up a lot more freedoms. I'm always cautious about a catch-all yeah. young people. As yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very hard to sort of ascribe one particular view to a cohort. But Saudi does have a big young population and unquestionably he has some popularity amongst young Saudis, clearly not all because there are protest movements, but he's done some things that that are big changes and particularly taking on the Wahhabists, which are the the conservative um, uh, religious uh, grouping within Saudi Arabia that have had so much power, also the religious police. uh, And he he has made changes that I think have been well received by a large portion of young people. And he's certainly got a vision of a different kind of Saudi Arabia and things like Neom, the big strip city in the middle of the desert, uh, kind of speak to that. But, you know, live golf, which you would have talked about. Uh, Putting Visit Saudi Arabia on the FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia. Um, These are all things that are happening under under MBS. So how hard was it to find people to speak to about, well, firstly, this leader, Mohammed bin Salman, but also the other leaders? Like, was it tricky to convince those who knew them or who had spoken to them to speak with you? Uh, Some of them less so. MBS, unbelievably hard. We had so many people agree to talk to us about him and then pull out because of fears about their own safety or the safety of their their family. And that's why one of the people that we meet in this episode, uh, we don't identify him by his real name. He is in Australia now. uh, And he explains in pretty, I think it's fair to say, shocking detail why even here he's afraid of the reach of MBS. No, my hands are sweating. <laughs> um, I'm kind of like getting hot flashes, um, but uh, yeah, it, it is nerve wracking. I mean, uh, you just have to worry. You always have to keep an eye over your shoulder. You know, um, living here in Sydney now, uh, my utilities are not in my name. Um, I don't want any direct link between my name and my address where I live. We're always keeping our our eyes and ears open. We do not go to Arab areas. We we do not frequent any Arabs. Absolutely nothing to do with the Saudi community here. This is chilling. It's normal for us now. That is crazy. But I guess it's just part of normal life for Saudis living overseas. And I, I think it's not just Saudis. I mean, certainly we came that, across that uh, wanting to do an episode on Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. I think less so with regards to Putin. I think there's you know, the world is full of plenty of Putin critics. Uh, but there are leaders who have reached into other countries and, there, are, you know, people do have grave fears, I think, even at a distance of some of these leaders. And I suppose for me and the team, it kind of spoke to the reason why doing this matters because these leaders do wield unbelievable power. And, you know, there's a school of thought, right, that leaders, the individuals themselves, 
don't really shape things. You know, they might be the caretaker in charge of a country, but, you know, global events are global events and they'll take their course and the geopolitical shifts will occur. China will rise. Mm. America may, you know, wax and wane in, in its power and that these sort of tectonic plates are moving all the time anyway and, a, and an individual at the top doesn't do much to sort of influence or impact that. But I think we are living through a time where unquestionably, particularly these strong men and strong women leaders, if that's the era that we're we're in, are definitely shaping uh, things that are unfolding in our world. Just think about what it was like for us in Australia in the region that we exist within when Donald Trump was the President of the United States. Mm. Suddenly the geopolitical... I guess, safeguard mechanism that we'd had in place because of our alliance with America felt a little shakier. You know, it's clearly our relationship has withstood Trump and that's what a lot of the experts said throughout. You know, don't worry, the relationship is more than just the leader. But you could sense at the time if there's someone else in charge and they want to set their country on a different course, we might end up in quite a different place. That's so true. Uh, Amish, who else are you speaking to? I mean, we just spoke about episode one, but you're talking about some other world leaders as well. Um, which ones? So we're looking at uh, uh, Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, uh, incredible kind of almost mythological figure uh, in some quarters. He's built up this reputation because he was a tea seller at a train station as a young man, now leads what will be the most populous nation on earth, um, as well as that Benjamin Netanyahu, who is our kind of comeback kid. He's back for his third term as Israeli Prime Minister. Uh, We're looking at Rishi Sunak, the new British PM, first person of colour, first Hindu to lead the UK. We actually recorded that episode last night and it's kind of ended in a spectacular bust-up between Sir Craig Oliver and George Brandis, who was Australia's High Commissioner to London, who could not agree upon (laughs) whether Liz Truss was sort of the author of her own demise or whether Rishi's just this great and brilliant politician that's going to come along um, and replace her. We were going to do Jacinda Ardern. She's left the stage. So I think yep. Santa Maran from Finland might Interesting. be Interesting. Oh, well, another fascinating dive, I'm sure. Hamish, just very quickly, finally, looking into some authoritarian figures, learning what makes them tick, just wondering any tips on how we might be able to handle Michael Hing, one of your colleagues <laughs> at the project, one of our colleagues at Triple J. Try and force him into a vote. Try and get the people to have a say. Agency's important. Voice is important. And when Hing is around, I know he does try to crack down on that kind of thing. Oh, he's a rough one. Look, it's a brilliant (laughs) listen. Go check it out. Take me to your leader on the ABC Listen app, wherever you get your podcasts. Journalist Hamish McDonald, thanks so much for making the time to speak with us on Hack. On Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.